Welcome to another podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots, a production of the Legacy of Hope Foundation. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today my guest is Angela Asawashigay. Angela is an Ojibwe from the Hendy Inlet First Nation. Uh, she is married and has three children. She is currently self-employed and works as a certified trauma therapist at Native Angel. Angela is the founder of 60 Scoop Awareness and a mental health advocate. She's an educator with the platform of raising social awareness about the history of the 60 Scoop and is dedicated to ending the stigma of mental illness. She also works as an artist and inspirational speaker and writer. She has written a compelling memoir which recounts her resilience to survive her loss of identity and child abuse. As a youth, she persevered through the barriers of marginalization and for decades received no treatment for her childhood trauma. Angela Ashawashige is a trailblazer of overcoming the 60s scoop trauma. Good afternoon, Angela. How are you today? Good afternoon, Gordon. Nice meeting oh. you. Yes, uh, nice to uh, see you again. Uh, we talked before on other other issues. It's really a pleasure to uh, to be talking to you again today. Uh, maybe we can start, or you can start by talking a little bit about uh, where you're from, your background, your family, uh, and that sort of stuff. Okay, thank you, Gordon. Um, thank you for having me here today. So I'll just start by saying that I'm Ojibwe, and I am First Nation, and I was born in Perry Sound. I'm originally, I originally come from Henby Inlet First Nation, and I've been living off reserve my whole life. My family background is a bit complex because I was a part of the 60 Scoop. A lot of people listening right now may not know what that is, so I'll just give you a quick definition of the term. The term 60 Scoop was coined by Patrick Johnston, author of the 1983 report, Native Children and the Child Welfare System. It refers to the mass removal of Aboriginal children from their families into the child welfare system, in most cases without the consent of their families or bands. Furthermore, the 60 Scoop was a continuation of the assimilation policies of the residential school. So with that said, I'm going to just tell you a little bit more about my background. For the record, I don't have any more contact with my non-Indigenous adoptive family anymore. And it's because of uh, my health and wellness. They were extremely abusive and racist. Although I was reunited with my biological family in my 20s, it quickly faded into a short-lived happy reunion. I have no more connection with any of my birth family, and it's been a heartbreaking reality. And this is why I titled the memoir, Lost Between Two Worlds. I didn't fit in or belong in my Euro-Canadian adop adoptive family. And every time I go to Henby Inlet First Nation, I don't feel like I fit in there either. I think it's because of our, our social distancing might have something to do with the multi-generational traumas caused by residential school, Indian Day School, and the impacts of the 60 Scoop. Colonial genocide has devastated our lives, and we are all at different stages of healing those traumas. It's really a work in progress. So that's about my, that's it about my family background. 
Before we get into uh, the 60s scoop and uh, what you are doing uh, uh, right now, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about your current work and your occupation. Uh, what's happening with your life right now? Okay, so right now I'm an entrepreneur and I'm self-employed as a certified trauma coach. I, I work at Native Angel. Um, I created my own business uh, back in 2017. I am very passionate about helping others to find their own pathways towards healing and wellness. Right now, I coach individuals one-to-one -one with my coaching services in person. I apply IFOT, which is an acronym, which stands for Indigenous Focusing Oriented Therapy. It is a land-based therapy modality. It's a safe therapy process without re-traumatization. So since the COVID pandemic uh, hit us in March, my business has really slowed down a lot. But I'm busy working on other things in the meantime. So what I've been doing ever since the COVID um, hit, I've been working on creating a few master classes of overcoming complex PTSD is one of them. And I'm also creating another master class, which is called Overcoming Colonial Trauma to help people with it through an online platform. It's always been my intention to have an online presence. And I think the COVID is actually helping us. Um, you know, we're, we're moving into a new paradigm where, you know, we're, we're, we're all forced to work online right now. So this is where I'm working um, on right now is creating these healing programs to, to work online. I'm very satisfied with my life's purpose of working as a trauma therapist. I've had a very extraordinarily long healing journey of overcoming many barriers to before I reached health and wellness. I am hoping to make a difference to help other people to achieve wellness and success in life in a much shorter time frame. Uh, I am also a mental health advocate at 60 Scoop Awareness. I feel there is a great need to advocate for the cause of ending the stigma of mental illness. I'm working to break down the silence and shame surrounding mental health. The stigma was one of the barriers which held me back from healing my trauma. We all need to talk about our mental health and to normalize. Gordon, did you know that 60 Scoop Awareness is in its sixth year of educating the public about the history of the 60 Scoop? I did not know that. I know that we do work about uh, creating awareness. Such events like the 60 Scoop and the residential schools and uh, and missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. But I was just beginning actually to, to learn a bit more about the 60 Scoop uh, in talking to you and other people. And, and I think uh, Canadian people in general need to hear and understand more about this tragic event in time of Canada. You were a child in the 60s scoop era. Can you share more about what that was like for you? So um, I was scooped away from my birth mother at the hospital. I was placed immediately into foster care for one year before being adopted by a Catholic Euro-Canadian family. My father was German descent and my mother was French Canadian. My childhood was basically stolen. I grew up responding to terrifying experiences, uh, being in a constant fight or flight mode to survive on a daily basis. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. 
I was stripped of my identity and human dignity. I essentially had no human rights. Uh, by the age of 10, I made my first uh, attempt to run away from home, and that didn't, that didn't work out for me. Um, and I was placed back into my abusive home. And so then I, the abuse continued after that. I continued to be abused horrifically. And I ran away again at the age of 16. And I ended up in the child welfare system again. I was lost at that time, having no sense of self-awareness or that I was even a victim of child abuse. And I quickly became mentally unstable by surviving with self-destructive coping mechanisms. And I also became a, a victim of the bureaucracy of the child welfare system and Canada's antiquated and flawed healthcare system. Both of those systems failed me. And um, so that was a, one of the, and that's basically a, amounts to marginalization. All of my child abuse wounds had become faded and invisible through a physical examination at the age of 16. So I had been taken, um, you know, my life was in a crisis, so, uh, and they were trying to figure out what was going on. So they put me through a physical examination, which, which came up with nothing because all my scars and bruises and cuts and everything else that I had been through for my whole life up to age 16 were just faded scars at that time. So they couldn't determine that I was actually a victim of child abuse. So let's um, talk a little bit about that, uh, uh, that abuse you, you're talking about. Yes, yes. Um, I, I basically, um, it was really horrifying. I was basically physically abused on a daily basis by my, my non-Indigenous uh, mother. Um, and I was also being um, sexually abused by my my older brothers. I had um, seven, well, myself included, there were seven of us siblings in the family. I was the only one adopted. So the rest of the children were their own, their own uh, offspring. And it was, um, there were five brothers. And out of the five brothers, um, four of them sexually, were sexually abusing me. And, and then when I reached age 14, my father started sexually abusing me. So that's a really long time of, of enduring um, physical and sexual abuse. And so that's, that's basically what, what was happening to me all through my childhood. Um, it was very difficult and hard to cope with. How did you manage to uh, get away? Uh, one day I got my report card and I was in grade 10 and I opened up my report card and I had failing grades and it was because I had lost all interest in school. I couldn't study and focus. So I, I was skipping classes and whatnot. So I had this horrible report card and I knew I couldn't go home because I knew my mother was going to just be livid with me and I, and I didn't want to face um, the uh, consequences and the, of her harming me. So I didn't go home. And that's how I ended up in CAS care because I didn't go home. And where, did you, uh, where did you go? I stayed outside all night. It was uh, mid-November. 
my dad was gone hunting and I, with this report card, I, I kind of made it halfway home, but I didn't go all the way home. And I ended up staying uh, kind of like in, in the outskirts of the town that I lived in. And I just basically went into the woods and I stayed there all night. And I was very, very lucky that it was a, a warm night and I didn't freeze. So I, I, that's what happened. And the very next day, I, I ended up getting picked up by um, a carpool of high school teachers because I started wandering on the highway. I started wandering down the highway, didn't know where I was going. And um, suddenly I was picked up by, by these teachers. And one of them was my neighbor. So when we stopped at the next town, we, uh, everybody got a car to get coffee. And I wasn't a coffee drinker, so I didn't. I didn't need anything, despite having not eating anything for the last, you know, 12, 12 hours or whatever. I had nothing to eat, but I, I didn't want to eat anything. But uh, my uh, my neighbor stayed in the car with me, and he asked me where I was going. And and I said, I'm going to school. And he says, well, what's going on with you? And I said, um, I missed my bus, so I'm just hitchhiking to school. And he called me right away. He says, no, that's not what happened. He said, your parents are worried about you. You're missing. They called me last night. Everyone is looking. They took, they took me to the high school. And right away, um, I went, the EAS went, launched its investigation right away. Um, I was, the children's aid came in. The police came in. Um, so there was a, a big investigation, police investigation, and going on at the same time. And so through that time, uh, like they immediately put, took me to the doctors and examined me from head to toe, and they couldn't see anything wrong with me because by that time, uh, most of the abuse that had happened to me had already happened, right? And many, many years of physical abuse. So I didn't, I didn't exhibit any any signs or symptoms, or it didn't show on the physical. But it was just mentally. Um, did you tell them? Uh, did you did you tell the authorities that the, the abuse that you were being inflicted with? Did you make actually, any kind of report to them? I I did give a, a statement to the police. I I did give them a statement, and uh, they were only interested in pursuing um, sexual abuse allegations um, with my dad. But they were not interested in anything else, I have to say. And I did tell them that it, that I was sexually abused by my brothers. And they, they said, oh, we, we really don't want to look at that because they're minors. And for some reason, they that's what they said to me. And they were not interested in any of the physical abuse, trauma right. that I had endured for many years um, from my mother. What, so I did, I did tell them what had happened. So did, they, did you end up going back there or did they move you somewhere else? I was placed in temporary um, foster care at the time until they determined whether they were going to keep me um, in care. And um, so I went through a very um, stressful time of, of trying to convince them that I was, um, I didn't want to go back. I did not want to go back to my so-called home. And I, it, 
they just kept trying to to mediate between my parents and me to try and work it work it out. They were actually trying to work it out. They were trying to say, we're going to try and work this out. We're going to try and fix things so that you can get back home again. And, and it took the, me to, it drove me to the point of, of threatening harm uh, for them to believe me. Um, I said, um, if you put me back there, one of us is going to die. Either I'm going to die or I'm going to kill someone. That, I had to make death threats. Well, to, to well. take me seriously. They, they wouldn't take me seriously. So they, they finally, another thing that happened uh, was I made a suicide attempt at that time too. My first suicide attempt. And that's when they really started realizing that there was something serious that was yeah. going on, that they could be invisible wounds that they could not see. They, they understood that, okay, there is something going on here. So then they kept me in... Um, they put me in uh, as a permanent ward again at that point. In a different home? Yeah, I, and I ended up going uh, through different foster homes for a year. In a different uh, town also or in the same town? Uh, different towns. How many families did you live with over the years that you were in foster care? Uh, from birth to... Yeah, to your life. Uh, well, I know that in the first year of my life, I was adopted, I was moved around um, three times in, mm -hmm. in, as an infant before being adopted. Yeah. And then after uh, my crisis of leaving my adopted family, I, I estimate I, I must have moved probably I know it must be difficult for you to talk about this, but you've written a book titled Lost Between Two Worlds. Uh, how Education and Spirituality Saved One 60 Scoop Survivor, which is you. Can you share some highlights uh, about this book? Yes, I can. So the first thing that I want to talk about is how education saved my life. I value and support education, and I wish to share one of my favorite quotes. Chief Dan George once said, I shall grab the instrument of white man's success, his education, his skills, and with these new tools, I shall rebuild my race into the proudest segment of your society. I found that quote at one time, and I, I don't remember where I found it, but I it, it really resonated with me and it stuck with me all these years. So when I was a lost youth, struggling with mental health issues, poverty and marginalization, I didn't know that I was actually planting seeds of my success by pursuing an education. So I wasn't always a success story, Gordon. <laughs> at, age, at age 18, I was a high school dropout with only a grade 10 education. I couldn't focus or concentrate on my studies while coping with the effects of social injustices. So I survived hard times working minimum wage jobs and living hand to mouth. It was a stressful lifestyle of instability with ongoing homelessness and untreated mental illness. I was all alone and I desperately clung to hope. Somehow I was self-motivated to take action because I believed that I deserved a better life. So I went back and finished high school and then I went on to take two years of college. I gained some stability when I moved to Ottawa in 1988. 
I had a better resume with some higher education on it, and new doors opened up for me. I earned my first desk job at, in the government with a decent salary and benefits. So education does make a difference. That's what I saw at that time in my life. I was like, wow, that's really awesome. I really, I did something good for myself by going back to school. I also became involved with my culture too at that time. I began to learn about my culture and I participated in, in traditional teaching circles and lots of healing, traditional healing ceremonies. My spirituality and identity grew quickly and I learned more about who I was by doing that. But I wasn't done with school yet. I had the dream of writing a book of my harrowing life experience and I decided I needed more education to do that. But before I did all that, um, I worked in the government from 1990 to 2002. And, that, and in that time frame, I had three children. So in 2002, I resigned from the government because I wanted to pursue a university education. And so I, so I, in 2002, I, I went to university, which helped me to begin unraveling what ha had happened to me and my birth family. I started learning about the effects of residential school, not so much about the 60s scoop at that time, Back then, um, everything was in school, the research was centralized around the residential school. And I was, you know, I was very, I was really hoping I could find stuff about the 60 scoop, but I couldn't find anything because when I was doing my research papers and, and uh, assignments and so on, when, you, when you're asked to, to choose a research topic, I was always wanting to do something about the 60 scoop. But, I mean, I had my own... Um, take on it, but there was nothing to back me up, if you know what I mean, because you have to have your backup sources to back up your arguments. So I couldn't find anything to, to collaborate, you know, my, my arguments. So I found that very frustrating in university at the time, but, but I did learn a lot about residential school. But also at that time, I also learned that I was a 60 scoop survivor at that time, because at the very same time in 2002, so up to that point in my life, like we're talking, I'm in my 40s at that time. And uh, that's a really long time not understanding what had happened to me. So I had just learned, um, I had written uh, a piece of writing for an anthology called uh, Book of Voices. And it was, it was um, stories um, about um, Aboriginal adoptees. So I answered the call to that. And I, I didn't know that that was, about um, that there were others like me. So when I submitted uh, my piece of writing, um, I was really shocked when I got the anthology a couple of months later, like around Christmas time. And one day I got it in the mail and it was a book of, of um, 40 voices of 60 soup survivors, including my own. And I was really horrified that they didn't edit any of my work. <laughs> They just, they totally took the work as it was because it was basically um, valuing uh, the voice of oral storytelling, kind of like that, right? They, they don't want to edit your voice in any way. They want to keep your voice authentic. So when I sent my piece of writing into them, I was, I was, I was convinced that they were going to edit it. So, but it, it wasn't edited, and I understand now why they did not do that because 
they didn't want to take away anything. So it, university educated me about indigenous issues and social injustices, which gave me a new perspective about the social distance gap separating me from my birth family. Uh, learning about residential school and intergenerational trauma, I began to make sense of all the tragedies, the many, the many untimely deaths of my birth family members, the pain and suffering of family violence. Uh, in my birth family, there was a lot of family violence. It was all so shocking for me when I first met my family in my, in my 20s because they told me about all of these tragedies and I couldn't make sense of it at the time. It did, but when I went to university, I was able to go, aha, now I understand, right? It was, it, I didn't know anything about residential school in my 20s. I didn't know anything about the system. So when I, when I went to university, I was able to start unraveling this whole thing of why I, why I wasn't seeming to be able to connect with my family. They had a lot of trauma and pain and suffering. And when I had my own pain and suffering, um, I was overwhelmed with what they had gone through. So I kept socially distant because I needed to take care of myself and my own trauma. And I, I'm speaking only from my point of view, like from my side of why we have this gap between us. And I, I was, staying away because I was still hurting from all of my own trauma that was untreated, still untreated in my 40s. I still had no more, no treatment of trauma at that time. And uh, so that was why I stayed away from my birth family because I had to hold myself up. I didn't want to carry their trauma and carry my own. So that's right. kind of like how I explained from my point. So I want to go into now, I want to just talk about how spirituality saved my life a little bit, because um, that's yeah. a little bit, that goes into my book. The other thing that I need to mention about my book is that this is only the tip of the iceberg of what I talked about with you right now. There's, there was so much going on uh, with uh, social issues going on in my life, but, but I'm just basically only sharing the, uh, the tip of the iceberg with you. So the spirit, how spirituality saved my life. Uh, during my adult life cycle, I learned about the importance of our culture's spirituality, which put a few things about my life into a new perspective. As a child, I grew up in a terrifying world of physical and sexual violence, and I couldn't stay inside my body. As a result, trauma had given me the gift of becoming an empath, which is really psychic ability. Uh, I, when I was a girl, I was experiencing some pretty um, scary experiences while living in my abusive home. I had the sense, the sixth sense. So I, there was spirits in the home, and they were they were bothering me and making me feel uncomfortable all the time. And I I I didn't know anything about psychic ability. Like I was just a child at the time, never didn't know anything about being psychic, and. I also had my first terrifying uh, vision at age five. And I didn't know anything about Native spirituality, and there was no one around to teach me about Native spirituality or, or what it was like to be psychic, if, if you were a psychic. Like I, I was, and I didn't know it, but I just was dealing with all these scary experiences at the same time as 
the abuse that was going on. So I was living in a very terrified time. I grew up on a, in a farming community, so it was normal for me to see bears, wolves, snakes, and in particular spiders. I was in awe of the natural world, but only from a safe distance, as you can imagine. So when I gained stability in 1988, when I moved to Ottawa, I began to have nightmares. And I didn't know that nightmares were actually part of the healing process of trauma. I nearly died of another suicide attempt but the spirit world decided that it wasn't my time. I continued to have nightmares, but then I began to write journals about my dreams and I began to find an interest in dream interpretation at that time. The animal world came in to help me through my dreams, if you can imagine that, and they were coming in to help me to resolve unprocessed trauma. I did a lot of emotional releasing with uh, my my buried memories and repressed suffering. Um, so it, it came through an unconscious, like an unconscious um, processing trauma. And I noticed the trend of animals appearing in my nightmares, and they were actually representing my abusers. And I began to study animal totems and their medicines at that time. So that was really an, a very uh, important part of my healing, of self-healing, like without getting help from anywhere else. I was being helped through my dreams from the spirit world. The spirit world came in and they, the way they could connect with me was through my dreams. So the animal world came to me in my dreams to save me. So I, I overcame being the most vulnerable, marginalized member of society because my education and spirituality saved my life for me. Amazing. I just wanted to back up a little bit. You talked about when you were going through trauma and uh, living in this house, and you said you felt spirits. Was this before the uh, the nightmares of the animals coming to you, or was this separate? Was it like ghosts and stuff like that that you hear about? As a child, I was very energy sensitive because I, I had actually, my third eye chakra had opened up because, because I couldn't stay inside my body. I was dissociating all the time. I had to dissociate, it's called dissociation, but, it, but I was dissociating from such an extreme level that my spirit was, was able to leave my body. So I'd stay inside, the, the, the abuse was so harsh and so extreme. Your inner spirit of who you are was so traumatized. I had to leave my body to survive. And then and then what happens is when you do that, um, it, it basically activated my third eye chakra. Now, for people that are spiritual, spiritual out there will understand what that is. What you call it? Uh, what? Uh, a third it's eye? Third eye. It's your third eye. It's your intuition. You're, you're, we all are intuitive. Everyone is intuitive. But it's like a muscle when the more you use it, the stronger it gets. So my, my intuition was very, very strong as a child because I couldn't stay in my body. So I became a psychic. And then I was able, I was very um, terrified of the spirits that were haunting me. Wow. And I would go, go to bed at night. There was always these entities that were, that were uh, making me comfortable. Was this when you were awake? Uh, yes, I was awake. 
I was awake and I w it would only happen when I would go to bed at night feel like there were spirits in my room but I, yeah. I couldn't see them but I could feel them I could feel them I knew they were there has this ability, like, it almost sounds like you're gifted with something special and uh, which has helped you persevere the trauma you went through and, you know, the, the animals coming to you in your dreams and helping you get out of this, uh, help you heal through this trauma that you're going through. Has this ability helped you become who you are today in, 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 your, in your work as a trauma counselor? Yes. Yes, very much so. It's basically shaped uh, me who I am today because I have the ability to see spirits. Like, I can see them now. I couldn't see them when I was a girl. I couldn't see the spirits. But I evolved, and now I can see them. So I, I can see them. I, can, I really know when, when the ancestors come in. Like, I can feel them when they come in now. In fact, I had an ancestor um, come and visit me last night. That was very beautiful. So in terms of coming as a therapist, um, I work with uh, the clients from knowing whether they're working with ancestral uh, trauma or intergenerational or, or, or their own lived experience with trauma. I'm able to discern what what level of trauma am I working with? Is it vicarious? Is it, um, and, and because of my, my ability and my training, I'm able to help whether we're dealing with ancestral trauma. Because we all store trauma in our bodies when we've been traumatized. We, we carry the trauma in our bodies. So and it needs to be um, witnessed and validated. So when I when I work with one-to-one -one with clients, it, I'm able to help through my psychic ability. I'm able to help them work on what level that this trauma is is coming through them. Like, is it is it coming from them themselves, or is it coming from an intergenerational? Well, yeah. So yes, it's been able to help me to to work with my my career. Yeah, you're a you're a certified trauma therapist. At Native Angel, Native Angel is your business that you created, and is that like when you do counseling, do you incorporate any Native spirituality uh, components to it? Absolutely, um, it's it's a land-based uh, modality that I offer, and uh, also what I also offer is um, alternative holistic approaches to healing. Because in my life, I've gone a lot of my um, Healing and wellness has come from alternative healing modalities. And so I'm, there are many tools to help people through their processing of trauma, but there's so many different ways. And I'm able to offer them a tool basket, if you will. And I just present the different types of um, healing modalities that, that, there's, that there is and, and help them work with what works with them. So I help right. them to choose their own pathway. Um, I don't know their pathway. They they choose what resonates with them. You know, there's things such as sound healing. There's there's many different healing modalities that, that I have to offer it, along with my indigenous uh, tools as well. This next question is about reconciliation. 
do you have a message for Canadians about reconciliation? How we can make Canada a better country? Yes, my message for Canadians are we must all continue to work together at the process of reconciliation through the tool of education. I want to first just say that everyone matters. As an educator of the 60s group, I know that Canadians have an interest about the history of colonization and Indigenous issues. I know that because I have spoken to Canadians who commonly wonder why they never heard of the 60s group or residential school system during their educational path. When I began 60s group awareness six years ago in response to the reality that nobody seemed to know anything about the 60s group, um, it came to my attention because uh, whenever I met new people in my life, I would end up uh, informing them that I was a 60 scoop survivor and they didn't know what that was all about. And the reason why I told them I was a 60 scoop survivor, because when you talk, introduce your roots and that, I, I would always come up with, I have two families. I have, you know, I, first of all, I was adopted and I had, you know, I, my adopted family, and then I also have my birth family, and, and then that, out from that would come the 60 scoop, and then they would go, well, what is that? <laughs> and then I would end up explaining that. So that kept happening, like, all the time to me, and I, and I recognized that, wow, nobody knows about the 60 scoop. So then I went online, and I started searching online if there's anything on the internet about 60 scoop, and there was nothing online. And that's when I decided, well, I think I might as well just start raising awareness about this Indigenous issue. And that's when I started a group awareness to raise, raise awareness about this Indigenous issue. So um, I also realized that racism is still alive and well in Canada. And I know that Indian stereotypes can be unlearned. And I have a story to share about that because I know that it can be unlearned. There was a time in my life when I was racist towards my own people. And I know that sounds crazy. <laughs> I mean, how could, I, how could one person be race, racist against your own people? Well, I can tell you why that happened. I grew up uh, learning about um, Indian stereotypes. My family was racist. As a result of the stereotypes that they made, teaching me that um, that uh, Indian people are all those negative stereotypes. I became ashamed of being a native person and I hid my true identity after that. So I started hiding my identity in uh, around age 19, 18, 19. I, really, I started hiding my true identity. So I started perming my hair and dyeing it um, any color but, but black. So I went through that period and I wore a lot of makeup. I wore a lot of fashionable clothes and and uh, I fooled everyone that um, that I wasn't a native person. I would shock people when I would tell them that I was native and they go, no way, you're not native. And, and I was like so proud of myself. I'm like, oh my God, I fooled everybody. And then I would shock them and they'd go, wow, that was so impressive. There was a time in my life when I was in a homeless crisis and I stayed in a native women's shelter for a few months. At first, I was prejudiced and judgmental because of learned racism. So all the women that were at the shelter, um, I thought I was better than everyone. I, 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 was, was, I thought I was above them. I was looking down at everybody because I, had, I was already carrying my, the stereotypes in my head. Like I was 
thinking like, oh, these people are just all, you know, lazy and all those negative stereotypes I had learned. But then after staying there for, for a few months, I learned the truth because I was being treated well and I was respected and I was valued for the first time in my life. I had a moment of weighing the differences of Indian stereotypes versus being treated good and for my wellness. And I, I kind of had this, this to weigh it out because I had like this moment of questioning, what are my values? What are my beliefs here? Because I was, I was taught this, all these horrible things about native, but then when I lived with them, they weren't at all. They weren't at all those. I learned that, that my parents were wrong about India. So it was like an epiphany moment in my life. So I felt this uh, moment where maybe there's nothing wrong with native people. And, and furthermore, maybe there's nothing wrong with me. But then there was this like, it was like this huge moment in my life where I, I, I realized that my parents were wrong. And it was like a turning point, it was like a huge turning point. So my message is, is that native stereotypes can be unlearned. The last part of uh, Indigenous Roots and Hoots is, uh, you know, Aboriginal people and uh, are funny people. We like to tell jokes and tell funny stories. Uh, in your life, you know, I'm not, not sure how much uh, Aboriginal humor you come across, maybe more recently in the years. Or you got a funny story for us to or a joke to kind of end this podcast? Well, I just can just say that I, I never lost my sense of humor. Um, I bought, once I started realizing like my identity that I'm Ojibwe and I always found everything funny. Like I always found a lot of humor in my life. Even when I was growing up in school and stuff, I would, I would uh, laugh and, um, and disrupt a class because the teachers would always have to tell me to, you know, to pay attention and, and stop being disruptive with my laughing. Also, um, I could also maybe go back to um, talking about when I, when I first became, when I first returned to my native roots. One of the things that I had to uh, adjust to was learning, learning that thing called Indian time. So that was one of the shocking things that I had to deal with when I first came back to my native roots. Whenever I went to um, an indigenous event, um, um, I was always frustrated when things didn't start on time. So um, because I was used to moving in a fast pace, always in a hurry and, and always used to having quick results for everything. But that's not the way for native people, right? So there are many differences. I kind of, it was like almost like a culture shock. So, so I had to adapt to that. Like it was, um, so I had to learn that, you know, when they say something's going to start at this time, it's actually going to start maybe an hour later or two hours later. So that I found that really frustrating <laughs> when I first came back to my roots. Yeah. So Indian time was like a joke, right? So people would say, ah, oh, it's Indian time, Angela. You just got to understand the Indian time, right? And yeah. so that was one of the things that I had to adjust to. And uh, anyway, yeah. I can laugh about that now. But at yeah. the time, it wasn't funny at the time. But, but I, I can laugh at it now for sure. Yeah, it, it's, it's real. It's real. It is real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've been talking to uh, Angela Ashawejigi, uh, Ojibwe. 
She's a certified trauma therapist. This is called uh, Native Angel. Uh, she started uh, in the 90s. She's also written a book called Lost Between Two Worlds, A 60 Scoop Survivor's Journey of Self-Discovery. Thank you, Angela, for taking the time to talk to us today. And I uh, wish you well in, uh, in your continued work at Native Angel. And uh, do you have a website, uh, Native Angel? Maybe give you a plug here. Well, I unfortunately, I don't have a, a website up yet, um, but there will be very okay. soon. I am yeah. working on the, the website content right now. Right. So yeah. uh, I think everything's going to just like come pop up soon. Like if anybody wants to look up um, 60 Scoop Awareness, that's on Facebook. And there is a website for that. There's 60scoopawareness.com. Um, so for myself, if anybody wants to find me with my uh, Native Angel, um, there is a Native Angel Facebook page. If anybody wants to get in contact with me. Okay. Thank you very much for being with us. Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.